I often hear today in a lot of our art review meetings, well, that's Star Wars or that's not Star Wars. And it's always interesting to hear what other people think is Star Wars. George taught me that Star Wars design is about bold design. Think about the original TIE Fighter or Slave One or even the cloud cars. It's easy to forget that George took a lot of risks. If you were to, for example, only look at the designs from Episode 4, you wouldn't have designed Cloud City or the AT-ATs or even Jawa's Barge. And yet, all those designs are distinctly Star Wars. They were unexpected, they were fresh, and they were bold statements at that time. These are the five rules that I came up with while working with George, and I won't go into too much detail here, but the first two are the most important. When you design, you design for the silhouette, you design for the shape, you design for the logo, you know, or essentially the icon of, of what that shape is. And the second one, the three-second rule, uh, was a huge eye-opener for me. I mean, it completely transformed how I design now. And it happened one day when I was showing George a whole bunch of designs, and I presented a wall full, and very quickly, in a matter of seconds, he picked out the, you know, one or two that he liked. And I finally had the courage to ask him, well, why did you pick that? And he said, well, Doug, you know, I don't understand these other drawings, and you're not going to be in the audience to explain these to the audience. They're only going to see it for a couple of seconds. And if they can't figure out what its purpose is, where the pilot sits, which way it's going, what it's supposed to do, then it doesn't work. So it's a brilliant way of looking at that sort of design. And I now use a little trick. So every time when I come up with a design that I think works, I try to redraw it in seconds. And if I can't, that probably means that it's too complicated and it's probably not as good as I thought it was. Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. We are talking about The Art of the Mandalorian book, season one, written by Phil Sostak. We've been so excited for this book for so long, and it's finally out in the world, and we've been wanting to talk about it for so long, it seems like now. It's a good thing to complain about, but uh, thanks to the, the the very nice folks at Abrams Books, like they sent it to us like crazy early, like a month ago. <laughs> it's like, ah, ah, I want to talk about everything. I want to talk about these pages. All of these pages are so many pages I want to talk about. But the, I remember when the book was announced, it was a surprise. I feel like with everything with Mandalorian, it's like the announcement of Mandalorian. It was like, what? This is coming. It's like every every Friday with Mandalorian. It's like what? This is happening. 
And then once it comes, you're like, oh, well, of course there's a, a making of book. Why wouldn't there be? Until yeah, until they announced it, it's like, well, it's, they haven't done a TV show like this before. Is there going to be an art of? But it's you know, it wouldn't be a Star Wars Christmas without a art book. So we've been spoiled the last few years. <laughs> it's weird because like thinking back, like you were saying, like this book was was, was such a surprise kind of when it was announced. But it's the weird thing with like Mandalorian season one. Like the art, the concept art being at the beginning of the end credits. I remember every single week, and I still am even with season two now, again, being surprised. Because it's almost like I don't know if it's the watching it at home factor or just how absorbed like every Friday we are in the story that you're watching then almost like you forget that like at the end there they have to show you like the concept art to be like don't worry it's all pretend baby Yoda's not really taken away it's only a puppet well and it's funny too that I do literally like completely forget that that's what they do as much as like after the first episode, we were both like, this is amazing. Like, well, uh, you know, we've been dreaming of the concept art being, you know, after the movies or before the movies, like ever since the Empire Strikes Back concept art trailer, it's like, why don't we ever get another concept art trailer? And like literally every week and when the episode ends and the concept art comes up, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's concept art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I always forget about it. So they like it's kind of, it kind of breaks you out of your trance of the episode a little bit. Like oh, oh, okay. Now, okay, I'm breathing again. I can, I can feel my feet. <laughs> but yeah, now finally having the art in a book, it just it feels like it's a real thing now. It's a real Star Wars thing because there's a an art of book that we're holding in our hands. We say it every time. Yeah, we do one of these uh, special art book episodes. It's the it's really the longest running tradition in Star Wars history, the art book. And yeah, this book for the Mandalorian it just falls right in line with some of the best ones ever. I mean, I don't. This could be. I don't know if I'm saying that because it's it's still new and I'm still like looking through it and discovering. But this could be one of my favorites of all the star wars art books especially in this new era i mean i love all the stuff that phil has done and the rogue one one but i don't know there's something about this book that is really appealing to me i don't maybe because that's the whole thing that mandalorian has always been such a surprise and kind of such a enigma of like how did this thing come about we know like that favreau and filoni are like good buddies and we, i remember at celebration like favreau talking about how he like wrote all of season one in like a fever dream over christmas like or something but we never really knew much about how the show got made and we even had disney gallery but that was more the legacy and all the stuff it didn't get into the dirt like a lot of you know these these art of books do yeah i think that's a good point that this is kind of our first text where we can kind of trace the history of the show and you know again one of the great things with the newer art books that uh phil puts out is the the mix between making of the film and the art of so that half of the book is just fascinating to read and then i think with the art this one is interesting because it's so much less of a 
oh, that was a cool design they didn't use, or, oh, I wish they would have used that design or this design. And it's more of just showing you the early versions of what you saw in the show. And I don't know if that's just because they didn't have as much time to just kind of go off on tangents, but it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It makes it fun to read the book because it is, it's like I'm watching the show again in a way, you know, but just in a different, in an art style, it's like a hand-drawn version of this live action thing I've been watching. It reminds me a lot in that way of the art of the last Jedi. I know we said like when we did the episode for that book where, you know, you look at the, the art of force awakens or the art of rise of Skywalker or rogue one or solo or any of these books. Yeah. There's always that wild blue sky period of things that aren't even close to what you saw on the screen. It's like a whole other movie in there in those books. And last Jedi didn't really have that too much. And this one, yeah, it's just kind of like, there's some stuff in the beginning that was kind of exploring ideas, but a lot of it is just like, yeah, we, we wanted to do an Ugnaught. So we were doing some drawings of Ugnaughts. <laughs> right. There's definitely a clear vision for the show. And it is interesting to see with the visuals and with the text, just how that came to be and, and how there was a clear vision and how quickly they were able to get this show from Favreau's original pitch to getting concept art working on it to getting the go ahead to start filming. Like it really was incredible just how everything, all the pieces fell into place for this to not only get made so quickly, but to just turn out so well, it's a good sign of uh, if you put a bunch of people who know what they're doing together, they can do amazing things. And one thing with the book that I think separates it from some of the other art of books is it's a much smaller group of artists. As you flip through some of the incredible art in the book, it's a lot of the same folks doing art. You know, you meet some new best friends flipping through these pages. You're like, I love everything this person is doing. You get the sense on some of some of the other ones. I think Rise of Skywalker was the most recent one we did, so that's still kind of more fresh in my mind. But you know, artists would have periods where they worked on on that show, and then they'd go on and you know move on to something else, and people would kind of come and go. Or certain artists only worked on certain parts of the movie. Where this, you know, you got all the first eight episodes of season one, and it's kind of it's a very clear, consistent vision or voice of art and design throughout the season it seems like yeah because it's almost like with what we saw in disney gallery where between the directors and the crew there was a very tight-knit focused group of people and that now with this book we see carried over into concept where it was it was a smaller group of people who knew what they needed to do and did it and the proof is in the the season one, I mean, we're in the middle of season two, and I still think about season one all the time, just how amazing it is that we're now in the the era of Star Wars TV and that it's just, it's so much more than we ever imagined it would be. And it's really just beginning. There's so much, like Cassian is filming, like Kenobi is about to film, and 
we're, we've just kind of taken the first steps into this thing and it's terrifying and it's exciting and it's amazing. Well, and, and it's, it, it just messes with your brain when we're, you know, digging into this art book for season one, while we're in the middle of season two, thinking about there's an art book for season two and they're actually, they're working on what we'll see in the art book for season three, potentially right now, as we're watching season two and reading the art book about season one. <laughs> don't, don't even, you can't, you can't do it. You'll go, go crazy. <laughs> I love to something with this book is how it has separate chapters for each episode. And gives you a little bit of background with Phil's always amazing behind the scenes text that he writes of with interviews, uh, kind of talk, setting up each episode. Like if you just want to see all the art from Sanctuary together, there's a whole chapter just on Sanctuary stuff, which is really kind of cool because it's like flipping through the book. It's like watching season one all over again, just in concept art form. Yeah, and it's fun to see with the the separation that way too. What, if any, effect the different directors had on kind of the direction of the art for that particular episode. Another thing that's different with this book is just I think just the addition of Dave Filoni's art. Where do you have the the, the art of the Clone Wars book? No, that's one of the ones I missed. <laughs> but I believe there at one point a lot of the art that ended up in the art of the clone wars book was on the official site and i can't remember if it's still there if you go digging for it well at least for us dave filoni art in an art of book is a is a new thing for us i loved seeing his like now famous sketch on the back of a napkin that's absolutely gorgeous kind of style that he has you flip through the book and there's these gorgeous illustrated full color pieces of art. And then just often in the corner, there's just this like dead on perfect scribbly pencil sketch that Dave Filoni did. That's just amazing. And like Dave Filoni can sum up everything about the whole show in like a pencil sketch on a piece of lined paper. I feel like, yeah, it's just so cool to see the whole process of that too, of just how it works, where there'll be literally this, the world's simplest pencil sketch that gives you all the information you need. And then that, you know, ripped out piece of notebook paper goes to Doug Chang, who either himself or with his team turns it into this beautiful painting. And then a year later, that beautiful painting gets translated into live action almost exactly <laughs> what was originally in that little pencil sketch and just seeing that whole cycle of the whole creative process is just, it's, I don't know. It never gets old to me just seeing how that works. Kind of the last thing that I thought kind of separates this book from some of the other ones is it's just, it's something that's just part of the DNA of the Mandalorian, but it really becomes clear in this, in this book is just the whole kind of design philosophy of the show where it more so than some of the 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 recent movies Star Wars movies it really embraces all the eras of Star Wars we've seen before with the designs of the original trilogy that are also iconic as we know 
it has more prequel stuff, especially in season two, which that'll be really interesting when that book comes out. And Clone Wars influence, and it's like the thesis statement on the rules of Star Wars design. Like <laughs> flipping through this book, it's you know, it's it's the masterclass of the you know you always hear Doug Chang talk about of the rules of Star Wars design. And what is Star Wars? What does that mean? And the simplicity of it and the art nouveau of the Phantom Menace and taking in inspiration from places you wouldn't normally think for a space opera movie. And it's just, it's all right there. And it's in typical Star Wars way, like we say all the time, it's not flashy, but it, yeah, it's all there in The Mandalorian and especially in this book. Well, it's like if Disney Gallery was Star Wars school, the art of the Mandalorian is your textbook. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, there's a couple great Doug Chang quotes from the uh, the foreword in the book of just how he says the Mandalorian channels more than 43 years of Star Wars storytelling and designs to create something fresh while honoring what came before. And yeah, it's I think that's you couldn't say it any better. It's it's Star Wars school. And also that John Favreau encouraged us not to be afraid of creatures that looked like rubber puppets. That's that's part of Star Wars school. Yeah, that's the first lesson. Star Wars was a big influence on me because it was it came out in seventy seven. I was born in sixty six. So I was right at the right age for that thing to hit. And it was before all the hype, you know, it was, it was the first to kind of the popcorn blockbusters. You had that and then you had Spielberg's films. So you had like Jaws and that. But before then it was, it was still the 70s, you know, it was 70s movies. And, and I remember seeing, I don't even remember seeing a commercial. I remember seeing like a picture in the newspaper, like the New York Post or something about the movie and it was after it was out already, and it was like, this looks pretty cool. Or it was coming out, I forget. Uh, and I saw the picture of, like, Chewbacca and Han Solo and whatever the headline was, I was intrigued. And I went to see it, and then it was just like, it just pinned my ears back just looking at that thing, and I was just mouth agape. So let's start talking a little bit about yet yeah, the amazing, as usual, behind the scenes information. Yeah, like we said, we, you've heard a little bit about like yeah, the, the basics from Disney Gallery, but as usual in these books, Phil is bringing the real juice, and it's it starts what yeah with John Favreau meeting Dave Filoni at Skywalker Ranch, which John Favreau was working on Iron Man, and which. Dave Filoni was finishing up season one of Clone Wars, which is crazy to think about. So, here we go. Dave and I uh, met each other up at the ranch, which if we feel like you would uh, if we were working at the ranch, and I was mixing Iron Man. Yeah, I was making Clone Wars season one. Early days, early days. So... I brought him into the uh, Kurosawa stage yeah. and showed him, he's the first person ever to see Iron Man. <laughs> and I was the first person to see Clone Wars, you and your son, very first test audience. That's yeah. what's fun about being up we at the We traded. Ranch. Yeah. We traded. 
And I said to him, this is awesome. If you ever need a voice, let me know. I just happened to need a voice. That right. day, George had created a character named Pre Vizsla. Yeah. And I said, would you like to be a Mandalorian? Yes. And, <laughs> and Mandalorians were my favorite characters. Right. Obviously. Yeah. But there's great stuff in here, too, of like what Kevin Feige giving Jon Favreau a copy of Rinsler's other essential textbook for Star Wars school, The Making of Star Wars. Yeah, one of the other sacred Jedi texts. And it sounds like uh, Favreau was really into it and, and, and saw the parallels of what Lucas was going through trying to start Star Wars with kind of some of his issues with getting Iron Man and, and this whole Marvel thing off the ground. It's too bad that never went anywhere. Yeah. But I, I think the best is just, you know, you're hanging out at Skywalker Ranch doing stuff. What are you going to do? You're going to try to get into the archives. That's what I would do. <laughs> so I would, I'd be hiding in a bush outside with like a hat, a shrub hat on and like sunglasses. And as soon as they opened it up for anybody, I, what are you talking about? I've been here all the time. I'm supposed to come in. I'm, I'm with these guys. I would be dressed up as a briefcase. <laughs> but yeah, after weeks, it sounds like it took them weeks. They were finally able to get into the archives. Yeah, it's a great story that they're going through and like what Kevin Feige knows, everything in the archives, just pointing at stuff. And But yeah, this is going way back. I mean, it's 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 crazy to think about how long ago that was with like Iron Man 1 and stuff. But, you know, Marvel wasn't owned by Disney. Lucasfilm obviously wasn't a Disney property at that time. And eventually they, all these things they were working on kind of all came together and way back in September of 2017, Kathleen Kennedy reaches out to John Favreau, kind of like, hey, if you ever were working on something Star Wars, what kind of things would you want to work on? And Favreau is pretty adamant, it seems like, on his idea, never really sways from it. Mandalorians. He wants to do like a samurai Western thing about a Mandalorian. Which, in hindsight, is really cool, the fact that he wasn't just being a voice actor and that he was really into the show and really into kind of the storylines they were coming up with, with giving backstory to the Mandalorians. Yeah. Cause that was the whole thing. Even before that, that eventually Favreau doing the voice of pre Vizsla all throughout clone wars and just talking crazy Mandalorian nonsense on that show. Yeah. Cause at the time I was like, Oh, that's cool. John Favreau's doing the voice, but I, I never really would have thought that, that he was that into it, but he was. And and he was thinking of stories about Mandalorians just on his own before Kate, Kathleen Kennedy even talked to him. Playing this part, I did my homework about Mandalorians, and really all that we knew was Boba Fett, and there was reference to Mandalorian armor. So I've learned a lot about it. I know that there's always been a curiosity about the Mandalorians. People have spent more hour per screen second working on Boba Fett costumes than, than probably anybody else. As you wish. He went around for a long time, but he had a big impact, and I know that people are very curious about the guy. I certainly was. There's something cool about a bounty hunter. There's something cool about a warrior, and there's something about his face not being revealed, but yet him not just being a nondescript character. It hit something. It hit some sort of nerve. I know I, know I was really curious about the guy. You know, that's an action figure you needed to have. 
I would have done Admiral Akbar, you know, I would have done his his family too. But in this case, I ended up with a pretty big character. Yeah, and what Kathleen Kennedy is around that time is like, you know, you should talk to Dave Filoni because, and this is an interesting thing in the book where she's like, he wants to do something about the history of Mandalorians. And what Favreau's like, I know that guy. What does he say? I know Dave. I love Dave. So what, a few days later, it's Kathleen Kennedy, Favreau, Filoni, Carrie Beck, and then Rebels writer Christopher Yost. And they're all listening to Favreau's pitch for this Mandalorian story. And they're no idea if it's going to be for TV. I mean, Disney Plus isn't even a thing yet. And what the next day after this pitch, Doug Chang's art department was off making art. There on in the book on page eighteen, there's a felony little sketch on again on lined paper of hands holding a Mandalorian helmet. And what what did he write next to the the little Mandalorian helmet? It's like the helmet, the man, the mystery, or the myth. <laughs> oh, the myth. Even better. And right away, like Doug Chang's art department is working away. Like there's all this art in the beginning of the book of. That end of episode one Mandalorian of that now iconic shot of like the finger touch between now we now know him as Grogu and Mando. And they were already off and going. That's the crazy thing with this book and how kind of quick from the pitch to already defining like these iconic scenes, it all went. Like, I don't know, maybe we're just used to like the Rise of Skywalker art of book or something where it was wild and crazy, but putting concept sketches in a, one of those lottery tumblers to see, to see what comes out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that sketch on lined paper is just, it's incredible that it's so simple and it's so, you see it now and you're like, I want to watch that show. And now, and we saw that show in the fact that, yeah, the first episode ended exactly with this pencil sketch from a year before or, or more, two years before. It's just, wow, it's amazing. Well, kind of at the end of this first chapter, too, there's one of the only real kind of wild and crazy things that never happened in the show, or at least not yet, this horse chase painting by Christian Alsman. It's on page 21 of these giant, like, furry space horse things with Mando chasing them. Let's keep our fingers crossed for season three on this, this horse chase scenario. <laughs> there could be a horse chase next week. We don't know yet. <laughs> we, have, we have no idea. We have no idea what's coming. The, the, the entire next two episodes may just be all horse chases. We could turn it on, on th- this coming Friday when you're listening to this episode and the episode could be four hours long at this point. It'd be like, well, Never know what's coming. That's the way this is going to be. Okay, so the next chapter of the book is just titled The Mandalorian. And it kind of backtracks a little bit, which is fascinating as we trace kind of the history of the Star Wars TV show. That always mysterious, always elusive Star Wars TV show. It mentions specifically in the book Celebration 2005 which we were there, we were in the audience, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's still mind-blowing how in one sentence that wild man George Lucas just sat there with Captain Typho and Rick McCallum, and he 
basically told us what the rest of our lives was going to be. Well, we've been talking uh, about Star Wars TV series. Um, we're working on one right now, which is Clone Wars, which has been on the air, and we're going to try to expand that into a half an hour of uh, 3D animation. And, uh, and then we're also working on a live-action series, a spin-off, not with the main characters, but with other characters from the Star Wars universe. Uh, and uh, that we'll be uh, trying to put that together in the next year, and then we have to uh, write a year's worth of scripts so we can do it the way we did Young right. Indiana Jones. From, from right now until you die, this is what you're going to be doing. Because he breaks it down, he's like, we're going to do Clone Wars, and then we're going to do a live-action TV show. And everything he says about the live-action TV show still could apply to Mando. It, you know, They weren't thinking of Mando at the time, but maybe they were. I don't know. No, yeah. they weren't. It all, it all happened in some form or another. But it's just wild to think about, too. Like, So, he, yeah, he's saying the Clone Wars, and he's saying a live-action TV show. And now we're in 2020, a wild year to begin with. But we got... Bo-Katan and Ahsoka Tano in live action. Not even to mention Bald Boba Fett. But that's a whole nother thing. But like we got these Clone Wars characters in live action on this TV show. And it's just like, yeah, this is this is the way we live now. This is our life now. This is just this is our this is our normal. Right. If if future us flew back in time to the day after that panel and showed a showed footage of the Mandalorian, and it's like, see these characters? You're excited about these characters because they were in the Clone Wars cartoon that hasn't even come out yet. <laughs> and everyone liked them so much, now they're live action. <laughs> I haven't even seen Revenge of the Sith yet. These are wild times. Wild times we are living in. So we get a little... This book may have the most details of the the mysterious Star Wars live action TV show ever. And we know we go back and listen to our episode we did with Phil. Mc, Rick McCallum hired him. That's what he was working on at the time. So the dude was there. So he says the series was set in Coruscant's criminal underworld and art begins in November 2006 with artists like David Hobbins, Fabian Lacey, Eric Tiemens, Ryan Church, and uh, coordinator Phil Sostak, of course. And then, yeah, decades later, all these guys are reunited later when they're working on Mandalorian. And, yeah, and the show was, like, growing alongside Clone Wars. And there were things from it that went into Clone Wars, like Saw Gerrera. I was kind of shocked by this. The droid bounty hunter C-21 High Singer, which I had to look that up. I didn't even know what exactly that was, but I was like, okay. And then I'm like, what episode the C-21 Heisinger droid was in? And the Pike Syndicate, and they were all what, what planted in Clone Wars and intended to pay off later in the live action show. And there were 50 scripts, 50 scripts for this thing. Thousands of pieces of concept art. And it was all put on hold, what, because of budgetary concerns, which is just crazy. Yeah, especially when you think we're we're only at the fourteenth episode of Mandalorian now, and that as crazy as that it, that ride has been, that there's fifty of this other show lurking somewhere in the shadows. Well, it's wild to think about too. Like the only thing from that list that didn't pay off in one of the movies of the new era is the C twenty one Heisinger droid. So. <laughs> 
I'm waiting for C21 to show up any day now. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's it it is worth mentioning that they were kind of the test for Bo-Katan, Boba, and Ahsoka. We got a animated Sagrera in live action with Rogue One and a animated Pike in live action with Solo. So baby steps getting us all ready for the the worlds to collide. Slapping us in the face at five in the morning. So all the animated characters jumping out of our TVs and kicking us in the face. Literally what happens every Friday morning. <laughs> We're at a complicated uh, impasse right now. We have 50 hours, 50 scripts, unbelievable, uh, the most provocative, the most bold and, and, and daring material that uh, we've ever done. Um, the trouble is, is they're so complicated each hour. Is, has more visual effects and digital animation than any of the films that we've done. And right now, we're just struggling uh, to let, you know, there's a massive shift in the television industry, cable and network and everything else, and we have to just figure out a way, find the way, uh, which George is desperately trying to invest in, is to be able to do these at the cost of maybe 4 or $5 million an episode. That's our biggest challenge. That's our biggest problem. Um, they're so big. They're so complicated. And we just don't have the technology now to do that. But, you know, wait, you know, a couple of years, he will, he will find a way. And once that happens, I'm sure, you know, he'll start back on him. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It's a fascinating uh, look on all the characters that exist between episode three and, and, and episode four during that 20-year period when Luke is growing up, which Luke is not a part of. Um, so hopefully one day that'll come, you know, we'll be able to find a way to actually make it. Um, but right now, I mean, seriously, each episode is so big. And to have two of them, which would be the equivalent of a film, just couldn't, we just couldn't uh, possibly afford to do right now. Yeah, so then, the, you know, of course, the Disney sale happens and things kind of pivot back to a more original trilogy kind of focused era. And around this time, too, in this new era, uh, Dave Filoni is expressing his interest of going into live action. Yeah, and it sounds like Kathleen Kennedy was very supportive with this. And Dave is quoted as saying, um, Kathleen orchestrated sending me to set. And is therefore instrumental in all of this for me. I can't say enough supportive and good things about her. And it does sound like she definitely went uh, above and beyond with with giving him the support because he was on set for Force Awakens. He was on set for Rogue One, which it sounds like he had a little more to do because he was, uh, well, he ended up teaming up with uh, writer Gary Whitta to work on Rebels and also was working with John Knoll and animation director Hal Hickel to get Chopper and the Ghost in the movie. And also, it sounds like that's when he met Greg Frazier and Baz Idawine, who ultimately were the cinematographers for Mandalorian. And then later in the book, it says, uh, Filoni's greatest education as a live-action director may have come on the set of The Last Jedi in early 2016. Uh, Phil writes, Filoni recounted that director Ryan Johnson had me right up next with the camera. He shoved lenses in my hand and said, look through here. He would bring me along to show me how to block a scene. Ryan was so supportive of my interest in doing live action, as was his producer, Ram Bergman. They really made me feel like this was something I could do, which is just awesome to hear. Yeah, because it's we got the impression that... Ryan and Rom are really nice dudes, and it sounds like they really are really nice dudes. 
<laughs> just all around. Unless you're at Disney World and Rom is trying to walk around with his young son and two extremely tall fans are staring at him from across the way. Yes. Don't get too close to his family. Other than that, he's a, he's the nicest guy in the world. So kind of, yeah, after like what, just nine months of design and prep in October 2018, they're up and running filming the show. And Filoni is on set directing the first episode, which is shot concurrently with uh, Deborah Chow's uh, Chapter 3, The Sin. It's crazy to think back that, was it like October 3rd or 4th of 2018 when that photo got released where it was like, hey, we're making this show The Mandalorian. And here's a photo of The Mandalorian. And that's basically all we're going to tell you. And it was like, what? Yesterday, Jon Favreau revealed on his Instagram the title and synopsis for the new Star Wars series he's writing and executive producing entitled The Mandalorian. According to his Instagram, after the stories of Jango and Boba Fett, another warrior emerges in the Star Wars universe. The Mandalorian is set after the fall of the Empire and before the emergence of the First Order. We follow the travails of a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy far from the authority of the New Republic. StarWars.com has also just revealed this first image of the series, as well as news that production on the series has officially begun. The Mandalorian will be written and executive produced by the Emmy-nominated producer and actor John Favreau with Dave Filoni directing the first episode. Additional episodic directors include Thor Ragnarok's Taika Waititi, Soulmates' as Bryce Dallas Howard, Dope's Rick Fumiyiwa, and Jessica Jones' as Deborah Chow. The Mandalorian, executive produced by John Favreau, Dave Filoni, Kathleen Kennedy, Colin Wilson, and Karen Gilchrist, co-executive producing, will debut exclusively on Disney's upcoming streaming service. Well, and at the time, we had no idea kind of where this came from, and now realizing that that photo was released because it was like almost like the only photo they had because they had just started filming. <laughs> it's pretty wild to think like that was literally hot off the presses. Like they started filming and they gave us a photo from it to let us know that this was even a thing because up to that point, since the Disney sale, it seemed like we knew the movies were coming for years before they came. And to basically find out that something was happening literally as it was happening was pretty exciting. There's there's a great quote from Doug Chang in here where he says, very quickly, within the first two or three months, we outlined the visual look for the whole series. So everybody from the studio side to Kathy to the teams that were coming on board could very quickly understand where we were going. Amazingly, that changed very little. It got more refined. It's just such a different kind of thing than like where we're used to seeing and reading about in these books where the look of the show just got nailed down. Yeah, like Doug Chang is saying there, just real quick. And more artists come on and they're like, here's our show. This is the style of our show. It's all of Star Wars, all at once, playing really loudly. <laughs> but as we were saying earlier, like the core group of artists – of you know Christian Alsman, Ryan Church, and Doug Chang, of course, like they had been designing Star Wars for a long time and all got the Star Wars school lessons right from Lucas. So you basically had everybody coming from a place of being very comfortable designing in the world of Star Wars and then having someone like John Favreau and, and Dave Filoni kind of steering the ship who had very clear ideas of what the show was going to be. It just really shows in the work that 
that they did. Yeah, there's a lot in the book talking about how John and Dave are just very decisive and very, what, real quick to make decisions and to approve artwork. Yeah, Doug Chang goes on to say, normally on our films, we take four to six months in the initial design phase. He says here it was truncated to a month and a half with a very small crew. And he says partly the efficiency worked out because there was an urgency. And John and Dave, in terms of their feedback and comments, were so precise that we were able to hit and finalize ideas within one or two rounds, which is very unusual. And he goes on to say how directors normally like to explore and explore and then see where it goes. But John was very decisive and that if there wasn't a specific direction, he goes on to say, I would put something down visually just to inspire John. This reminded me very much of how I worked with George. You know, and there's really something too, like people doing things in the creative world of, you know, it's the cliche thing now, but usually your first idea is the best. And kind of the they didn't have the the luxury of working an idea and working it some more and seeing where it goes and playing. Well, maybe if we do this, there's no time for that. We just got to, that's good. Run with it. You know, and you, you get that sense when you flip through some of the big things in the book, like the pages dedicated to the razor crest or the kind of fascinating development of the child. You see a little bit of flow of design and experimentation, but it's, Nothing ever too far off. Like there's no Minch version of Grogu or anything. There's close. There's the one a picture of a young child that looks like they just painted green, but <laughs> just a little bit. And you get that sense even like going through like again, like the chapter on Sanctuary. And there's there's like that spotlight on uh, Tony McVeigh coming back and how he was part of like Phil Tippett's studio on Return of the Jedi. And he built and created salacious crumb and he was he's on here making these incredible models of like alien heads and stuff he was probably just going through doing this stuff that he's been doing for almost 40 years making these alien heads of these corn and these squid heads and stuff you just really get the sense that with mandalorian yeah the this efficient way of doing the show. And you see that now with like, they're going into season three. It benefits the show, not overthinking the ideas. So I guess is what I'm saying. Well, and it's cool with Tony McVeigh's another kind of what stuff we saw at celebration of just how excited, you know, some of the old ILM people were to help out. And then, you know, bringing him in, I feel like they brought him in to make a new salacious crumb for, the first episode, but since he was part of the crew now, they were just giving him all the sculpture work and letting him, you know, redesign the Trindoshans and Quill's head and, yeah, reworking the Squidman and the Weakways. Like, just basically, again, having a small team and bringing in somebody who's really, you know, a master of making Star Wars creature sculptures. Like, he worked on... You know, Return of the Jedi, but he also worked on uh, concepts for episode one and episode two. So it's like just bringing in these people who are comfortable with that full, full range of, of what is Star Wars, like, you know, the original trilogy and the prequels all mixed together. Well, and as they keep going, you mean even an episode like The Gunslinger, which not everyone it gets kind of, I think it gets kind of an unfair bad rap from out there nowadays, but it's interesting reading about Filoni working with Favreau and this kind of way of working that they had together 
then influencing something like the final season of Clone Wars, where where Filoni's got a quote in here where he says it definitely affected Clone Wars this year, referring to the final season. You need to be challenged constantly. And John's knowledge is a challenge for me, which is good. And there's all kinds of things about Star Wars that I can lend. This is Filoni talking to him about little subtle tweaks on lines and things that connect to the broader Star Wars universe in a way that he might have missed if I wasn't there. But he's talking about how John challenged him to to ask the questions. Like He says, what are you really saying? What's the most important thing about this? What do you like about this episode? And he starts to distill it down. You need to find ways to be subtle, but still get your point across. And I've worked on that. Yeah, because I like he starts that paragraph with his, uh, his quote of, usually my first pitch is an overload for him. Which we've seen enough excited Dave Filoni interviews to to, to know what that looks like. <laughs> but I was I kept thinking about that that whole page in this book, watching the Jedi and just how minimalist that episode was, and it just felt like that was an example of you know the result of the the collaboration between John Favreau and Dave Filoni and and. Floney with his writing, trying to be more simple and to the point and, and almost minimalist as opposed to trying to cram a ton of stuff in. Yeah, so then just what? After just four months of shooting, they showed that footage, all that footage at Celebration Chicago. We were there, again, not knowing what to expect. We didn't even know the child was a thing. Like we said a million times, we thought it was just going to be this show about this this bounty hunter. I don't know. That could be cool. We'll see what happens. Yeah. The, they show the footage. It pretty much kills us. And it's just crazy to think like when we sat there in Chicago on that snowy day and they showed that, that there was just two years after the whole thing was just a crazy thought that, <laughs> that they had. And we had no idea that what we were seeing was going to change the rest of our lives. <laughs> It's again, well, it's celebration 2005. It was raining and it was really cold that day. We should know that if the weather is weird and it's cold at a celebration, we're going to see something that is going to affect the rest of our lives. (laughs) Well, there's a, there's a great quote in here from John Favreau where he says, star Wars must've been powerful because it dictated everything that I've explored and liked from from a cinematic perspective since 1977. As I peel back the onion over the years, going to samurai movies with my dad, learning more about westerns and the movies and the myths that inspired Star Wars, it's opened me up to understanding the hero's journey, the monomyth, and Joseph Campbell. Also, it's been a gateway to learning about myths of other cultures and religions and the archetypes that exist in storytelling. As I've learned more, it's refined my understanding of storytelling. So what he's saying is he went to Star Wars school. (laughs) And now he got hired as a professor. I've known since I stepped into this job when George Lucas asked me to take over Lucasfilm that John Favreau was a huge Star Wars fan. So when we found out that Disney Plus was going to let us make TV shows, we got so excited. And John sat down and pitched the idea of Mandalorian. And it was instantaneous. 
We were so excited that there was an opportunity to bring this to the screen. And I also have a feeling that everybody in this room knows that this guy is a rock star. And I have to say, what could be more exciting than Dave Filoni directing live action? So the fact that John and Dave have come together and are working together on Mandalorian, I have to tell you, there, it, this has been the most fun, the most amazing experience. And I'm gonna let the two of them start to give you a better idea of what this show is all about. And I think by the end of this discussion, you guys are gonna be as excited as I am. All right, so let's go through the book and let's pick some of our favorite art pieces and little interesting bits throughout the book. Gabe, what's, what, what would you say is one of your first highlights in all the amazing stuff in this book? Maybe I'm cheating, but I am going to start with pretty much the entirety of page 32 and 33. Basically, they're like, it's just the costume designs for the transition of Mando through the season. And they're done by kind of, I guess, newcomer to Star Wars, Brian, who I think we found out is Hungarian, has Hungarian heritage. So his last name is Matias, M-A-T-Y-A-S. But his art is, I don't know, he is one of my new Star Wars concept favorites. And it seems like he did almost all of the costume character design and i just love his drawings of mando and his armor and the progression and i wish there were life-size posters of all of these stage one through five and i could just hang them all the way around in a room and just sit in the mando room i don't know yeah i just i like the way he draws i like the way he colors the colors and when again with uh this season season two of the the episode, the Jedi with Ahsoka, like with the lighting in that level, it just kept making me think about these concept renders of his armor and just how the armor looked. Well, I'm going to stay on the, on the Brian train and I'm going to say on page 29, there's one called Mando costume version one, where he's talking about, he was very influenced by seventies, eighties pulp sci-fi art. I was going for a real Frank Frazetta vibe, and it is this awesome illustration of Mando, like at the top of like this little snowy little mountain side thing, and there's a moon right behind his head. Yeah, and it looks like literally like he was saying, it looks like the cover of the most awesome novels, sci-fi pulp novel you'll ever read. And it's just, it's got a great vibe. I love the colors in it. Mando's cape. It's just awesome. Yeah, that's a good one. And I like, is that the one where he starts talking about the, I think it's the Frazetta thing of, of having the circles in the background. And you kind of see that carried through the rest of the book. A lot of the concepts with the with the suns or the moons kind of framing the the characters. You I mean, even on the cover <laughs> and with Doug Chang's painting. 
kind of carrying that whole visual theme through. Another, maybe I'm cheating, but on page 42, 43 is the one-two punch of a little tiny painting of the fairy man playing the flute. But then right next to him on the next page is the is an early concept of the speeder pilot, uh, the taxi driver from the first episode who originally was going to be a Trindotian. And there is a like marker sketch from Filoni of a Trandoshan wearing a winter coat with like crazy uh, sunglasses that are, you know, they're supposed to look like native Alaskan glasses, but they end up just looking like 80s sunglasses. <laughs> he's like, he's like a punk rocker Trandoshan in a winter coat. Yeah. And I love he's got a, he's got a winter coat and he's, but he's a Trandoshan, but he does, he's not wearing gloves or shoe, any shoes at all. Cause he's like super warm blooded probably. Yeah, and I and my fingers are crossed that he will still appear at some point in the series because we haven't seen him yet, and he's just he's too wonderful to let go. Well, this one isn't maybe quite so much a specific piece of art, but maybe it kind of is. I got to give a shout out to all the references to the battle for Endor in this book. I was shocked, and somehow also felt validated. Because there's two direct name drops to Ewok's Battle for Endor in this book. On page 71 and on page 142. And that doesn't even count all the like 20 pages of Borg art that are in this book. The Marauders from Sanctuary... When we way back when we did the episode for that, we're like, I kind of got like a Battle for Endor vibe from those guys. And lo and behold, you look in this book and they're like, we're kind of going for a Battle for Endor vibe with these guys. And I was like, (laughs) I knew it. So I was, when I first got the book and was flipping through it and I read those, I was just like, thank you. We weren't crazy. Or maybe we are crazy, but we were right. I know. You're the keeper of the power. Daddy, they killed Mommy and Mace. Well, I am going to, I guess, give a shout out here to page 54. Not necessarily because it's my favorite art, but just letting us know that and reminding us of the original idea of Grief Karga being an alien and him, them wanting him to be a weak way. I'm assuming they wanted a weak way so bad. That's how we ended up with the bartender in season two. Cause they just did not want to let that go. It wasn't originally, wasn't there some like Carl Weathers talk where originally Carl Weathers was going to play a weak way or something like that. Like he would said he was going to play an alien. He talked about that at celebration and yeah, there's a, there's a quote in here from Doug Chang where he says before Carl Weathers was cast, John wanted the Mandalorian boss to be a weak way. So they came up with the concept then when Carl Weathers came on board, we tried to adapt that mask to him. And he says, I believe it was a week or two later, John was asking, why are we hiring Carl if we're going to hide his face? So let's just save that for another character and embrace Carl as Carl, which is the way to go. If you're going to have Carl, have Carl. I got to give a shout out to all of Dave Filoni's storyboards in this book, especially one that caught my eye was on page 50 of the ice planet. I love these Dave Filoni storyboards. 
Yeah, maybe someday we'll just get an all Dave Filoni art book, and it'll it'll be printed on napkins. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of like there was that Joe the Joe Johnson Adventures of Tebow Ewok book right after Return of the Jedi that Joe Johnson wrote and drew. I'd love to see a Dave Filoni children's book. Unfortunately, he's probably really busy. <laughs> <laughs> but he could do it on a napkin in a meeting and it would probably be fine. Uh, I really like on page 66, just there is a, a concept of some street kids. And then next to that is a painting of the street kids interacting with Mando. And it's just a cool visual of these kids with like gas masks on. I don't know if they're supposed to be Mandalorian kids or just crazy little kids on Navarro, but. I don't know. We don't get enough of like alien kid stuff. So I like that painting. I'm going to give a shout out to a really small one. It's on page 171 and it's just titled Dubeck Sketch by Dave Filoni. Again, it's that Filoni style of just a sad little Dubeck in the, the Gunslinger episode with the little weird person like attached to the Dubeck just going through the sand. I love the colors in it. I love the blue sky behind the Dubeck. I kind of want it on a t-shirt, Dubak sketch. It's a small little one, but I really love it a lot. And it's an interesting comparison, too, like we were talking about, because right above that Dubak sketch, there's a Christian Allsman painting, gorgeous painting, basically of Dave Filoni's little Dubak sketch. Yeah, it's just so fun to see almost the different interpretations of the same image that we get in this book. I feel like we get a lot more of this than we've gotten in the other art of books. Well, kind of a similar thing, jumping back a little bit to uh, page 71. I really like Christian Alsman's Quill and Blurg painting at the top of the page. I'm just walking together in the desert. Oh, yeah. And then if you want to just keep the, the Blurg love going, the maquette stop motion puppet they made on the next page. Well, my last one, as far as like a big thing, is on page 154 and 155. The fact that there's two whole pages just dedicated to the pilot, the weird pilot that's chasing Mando at the beginning of the Gunslinger episode. <laughs> which we learned, we learned this, pilot, this pilot's name was Riot Mar, which is really cool. And we say like, all, you know, we've been saying all throughout this episode that how precise and locked in they were with like design ideas and stuff, but Riot Mar, they were always kind of moving around and they really wanted to get this pilot chasing Mando just right. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's funny with, yeah, like you're saying just how focused this production was that they spent so much time on that guy. Who's literally in like half a second <laughs> of, of the episode, but this is a good transition into a page. We can't, not talk about which is if you flip to the next page 157 just the whole page of amy sedaris's character pelimoto and if you read the caption from filoni we find out that he told amy sedaris you don't have to know anything about star wars but have you seen taxi the tv show and that he wanted her to be danny devito's character from taxi it's it's john ford it's Samurai, it's Joseph Campbell, and it's Taxi. Those are the building blocks of the Star Wars. And why hasn't Danny DeVito been in the Star Wars yet? That's the real question. It's never too late. 
Well, there's other like little stuff. There's, you know, we get illustrations of the farm droid from Sanctuary. There's one like shout out of just Pershing's Camino arm symbol. Some guy named Tom Spina gets a shout out with the cantina sign and he's labeled in the book as a cantina expert, which is very true. On page 207, there's a, a shot of IG-11 apparently hitting the space bong. Didn't know what was up with that. And well, we can't forget that there's, for the first time in way too long, there are brand new concepts of super battle droids and of droid helicopter ships flying in the sky with the concepts for the flashback. Yeah, basically, Clone Wars art, yeah. The maquette of the Mudhorn is is extra beautiful. It makes me want a Mudhorn toy. It's like, they have it. It's right there. Print me one. Make it. Yeah, there's there's so much stuff in this book. The thing flipping through a lot of this book, too, is I feel like, you know, because the whole nature of the TV show, like every week we move to like a different episode. Unlike the movies, we don't dwell on a lot of the designs as much and just flipping through it and just having time to look at some of this stuff that is on the screen and look at gorgeous illustrated paintings of it. Well, and then there's things like there's a kind of a, a quick, almost colored pencil sketch of the Zilnor character from chapter six with uh, the actual actor's face, like kind of Photoshopped in. It's like, I really want a tattoo of that somewhere <laughs> on my body. <laughs> we haven't gotten a black series of that guy yet, but well, and we can't forget too. on page 198, there is a concept for a scene that was going to happen that would have put both of us in the ground. We would be dead. You wouldn't have this episode, which is, uh, it says it's an early iteration of in chapter seven, the reckoning instead of Cara Dune, like doing the, the pit fighting stuff. They were playing a strategy game where you controlled miniature spaceships with, with the, with whistles. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That was one that maybe they said we can't too much. Can't go there. We can't have Jason and Gabe die. <laughs> maybe Phil told them that that's too much. People will die. I know two people who will die specifically, <laughs> and I'm sure others will die as well. <laughs> uh, well, I, mean, I feel like we've just only just scratched the surface of what is in this really, really, really awesome book. Yeah, if you enjoy The Mandalorian and you enjoy Star Wars and you enjoy art, or if you even only enjoy one of those things, I can't recommend this book enough because, yeah, you're literally, you can sit, you can flip through season one and be in your happy place for hours just looking at the beautiful art and thinking about the story we've heard and drift off dreaming of the stories we've yet to hear with these characters as you stare at the at this the beautiful pages. If you don't have it, you should. If you have it already, you should give it to someone and tell them you love them with this book. There's no better way to do it, I, I think. Buy an extra one, save it for Valentine's Day.
underoos. Star Wars Boba Fett is here. That means Darth Vader's always near. C-3PO is lots of style. And R2-D2 just makes me smile. Star Wars underoos are here, yeah! Something out of sight in underwear. <laughs> Don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underoos are for Earthlings. This is Captain Rex. You're listening to Jason and Gabe on Blast Points. And these Blast Points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Folks, you know the drill. Apple Podcast Reviews, when you are done listening, go over there, say something nice about the show, about this show, a past show, the show in general, whatever you want to say. As long as it's nice, we'll read your review on an upcoming episode, and it helps the show, it helps the podcast in weird Apple ways, gets it up those weird charts over there. And after that, check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, and make sure you are following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're signed up for the Super Chill Group. It's the place to be. If you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon. Every weekend, we have got our Mandalorian review episodes which have been a lot of fun to do. They get in some cr- get into some crazy places. <laughs> Two weeks ago's episode on the Jedi was intense, and last week's episode on the tragedy was a lot of fun. We we freak out every weekend over there on the Patreon, and uh, and yeah, there's only a couple episodes of Mando left this season, which is just crazy. And there's only a few weeks left in this year in 2020, which is just as crazy. Ah, thankfully, there's, there's only a couple episodes left of Blast Points for the year after this, too. So it's all coming. It's all coming together. But that about wraps up episode number 246 here. The Art of the Mandalorian Season 1, Phil Sostak's new book. It could be the best book ever made. I don't know. I'm getting crazy here. Sostak is back, and he has got a book, and... You should be reading it because it is the best. <laughs> so Stack is back. He's got a book. Take a look. <laughs> Don't have a heart attack. <laughs> All right. On that note, folks, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Right. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
much, everybody. Look out for The Mandalorian coming to Disney Plus. Disney Plus? Disney Plus, November 12th? I think so. November 12th. You know. Thank you, everybody watching at home. That's it. Thank Bye. you. Bye. May the force be with all of you.